You're listening to Biblical Proportions. Our website is www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com. This is Biblical Proportions with Griffin Johnson. Try to think of the most bizarre story in the Bible. Whatever you're thinking of, I guarantee you the one that I have beats it. The story that we're going to talk about in this episode is one of those that will leave you scratching your head and wondering, is this stuff really in the Bible? This story is four short verses long, yet the things that we're going to talk about in connection to this story run the gamut from the Israelites' conquest into Canaan, to angels and demons, even to Paul's strange verse in 1 Corinthians about head coverings for women. You're truly going to cover a wide range. So, if you want to see how all of those things are connected, then you better stick around till the end. And I will warn you from the get-go that this is going to be a strange topic. But hang in there, and I hope that it will all make sense in the end. But if nothing else, maybe for a few minutes here you'll be fascinated. This story has to do with evil and sin in the world. And I think we all understand that with each generation that passes... It seems like the world gets more and more evil. And of course, we as Christians, we understand where sin comes from. We know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and introducing sin and brokenness into the world. This is how we understand where evil comes from. And the ancient Jewish person would have agreed. I mean, they had the same Bible as our Old Testament. So they certainly would have seen evil as coming from Adam's great sin. But for them, this wasn't the only cause of evil in the world. The other starting point for evil and sin, the other explanation for why the world is the way that it is for them, came from Genesis chapter 6. And the story goes like this. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. If that story didn't sound strange to you, then you weren't listening. Immediately, you should have questions like, who were these sons of God, and and what were they doing with daughters of men? What's this word Nephilim, and who were they? So many questions swirl around a strange passage like this. In this passage, you have some group of people called sons of God taking his wives, some other group of people called daughters of men, and having offspring with those people called Nephilim, or as it says, the mighty men of old, the men of renown. 
Now, throughout the history of Christianity and biblical interpretation, there have really been three primary interpretations of this passage, and they really all center around this phrase, the sons of God. What does that phrase mean? In the Hebrew, this phrase is B'neha Elohim, the sons of God. I'll spend a few minutes giving the first two interpretations for this passage that I don't think work at all before spending the majority of time talking about the third interpretation, the one that I do believe is accurate. The first interpretation is that these sons of God characters were human royalty on the earth. So men that were kings on the earth back in the day before the flood. Let's not forget that this story is taking place in the biblical narrative right before the flood happens. The idea in this view is that kings start taking wives of common women. In this passage, clearly what's happening is a sin. It's part of the lead up to the flood story. And I think can most clearly be seen as part of the reason, if not the reason, for why the flood even takes place. I mean, the very next verse, verse 5, goes into God's displeasure with what's going on on the earth. And then the next event that happens is God telling Noah to build the ark because there was going to be a flood. But if the act that these sons of God commit is evil, and the sons of God are merely human kings that take common women as wives, then one might ask, where's the sin in that? One of the most common answers for what the sin is that's being committed is that these kings were practicing polygamy. This hardly makes sense for a number of reasons. One, polygamy is mentioned nowhere in this passage, so we're simply reading that into the text, which is a big no-no if you know anything about biblical interpretation. And the second problem is, Polygamy happens elsewhere in the Bible and never precipitates a flood. So I'm not sure that polygamy is what's going on here. There are scholars, such as John Walton, that suggest perhaps instead of polygamy, these earthly kings that are marrying common women are practicing what was called in the ancient world prima nocta. Prima nocta was a practice where the king would forcibly exert his right, what he thought of as his right, to, let's just say, spend the first night with a new bride. Of course, this practice is evil. The only problem is that it doesn't mention this anywhere in the text. So again, with this view, you're reading into the text something that simply isn't there. You're doing guesswork. So the idea that the sons of God are human kings simply doesn't work. The second view that is really the most popular one is that these sons of God were human descendants of the godly line of Seth. Seth, of course, was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, known as a righteous man. So the idea is that the sons or the descendants of Seth were taking as wives daughters of Cain, who, of course, is infamous for his evil act of killing his brother. Of course, Genesis chapter 6 doesn't say the daughters of Cain. Again, what we have going on here is some guesswork. But this is seen as a bad thing because righteous men are marrying evil women. And I said this view has become the most prominent view today on how to read this passage. Because you have you know, some of the really big names in the Christian faith like 
Martin Luther who took this view, John Calvin took this view, Matthew Henry, the famous 16th and 17th century English minister whose commentaries you see everywhere also took this view, which by the way you'll usually see referred to as the Sethite view. Chances are good that if you hear a preacher or pastor today preach on this passage, which they typically don't do for obvious reasons, you will probably hear them take this view, the Sethite view. The problems with this view are numerous. I already mentioned that people think that the daughters of man are really the daughters of Cain. The problem there, of course, Cain isn't mentioned. In fact, there really is no link at all to the actual story of Cain here in Genesis chapter 6. Another problem is that the Bible at no place gives people from the line of Seth the designation sons of God. Also, if the big problem here, the big sin, is the intermarrying of the good sons of Seth and the bad daughters of Cain, how do we know that that's bad? There's never any sort of prohibition given against the two lines marrying. Perhaps the biggest problem with the Sethite view, one we'll return to in a minute, is the fact that this term sons of God, we said it in Hebrew it was B'neha Elohim, is used a few other places in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, it doesn't speak of men. It speaks of something else. Before we get to what that thing is, the last argument against the Sethite view is that it doesn't explain the reason for the type of offspring this union produces. If you remember, the text says that the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of man were what were called Nephilim. And as I've mentioned, the key to understanding what's going on in this passage really is understanding a couple of words or phrases, the sons of God and this other one here, Nephilim. What were the Nephilim? What does this word actually mean? The root word here has been debated over for quite some time, and I think is far from being settled. Most scholars take the view that the root word here is the Hebrew word nephal, which means to fall. And anytime you see an I-M ending on the end of a Hebrew word, which is what Nephilim is, by the way, it's, it's a word that's not been translated in our Bibles. They've left it in its Hebrew form. Most translations have anyway. And anytime you see an I-M ending on a Hebrew word, it means it's plural. So most scholars believe that this word Nephilim means the fallen ones. There are a few scholars that think that this is not the word being used at all. And without getting too technical, because one, I don't understand all of the technical arguments, and two, it would be really boring, they believe that there is a different root word being used. Dr. Michael Heiser, a scholar that I will be using quite a bit in this episode, thinks that this is actually an Aramaic word instead of a Hebrew word that's been put in here. An Aramaic word that looks a lot like the Hebrew word Nephal, but that actually means giant. And that's interesting because these Nephilim creatures turn out to be giants. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates this word Nephilim not as fallen ones or as anything else, but translates it as giants. Most likely, they went back and translated it that way because of what they knew from passages like Numbers 13, 33. 
in Numbers chapter 13, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go into the land that God has promised them. And they send the 12 spies into the land. And in verse 33, this is part of their report. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. So clearly these people were very tall. Giants, in fact. And so whatever this word Nephilim means, it's clear from the context and the way that it's used in other places in the Old Testament that these people were giants. If your head is spinning at this point, that's okay. I mean, what is really going on here? We have these beings called the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of man, creating these Nephilim or these giants. So I said earlier that it would be important to understand what this phrase, the sons of God, really meant. The Hebrew phrase, B'neha Elohim. It's used a few other places in the Old Testament, and every time that it's used in the Old Testament, it speaks of angels or heavenly beings. I mean, just to name a few, you have Job 1.6 and 2.1 and Job 38.7. You have a very, very similar phrase to B'nai Ha-Elohim in Psalm 29.1 and in 89.6. I mean, everywhere this is used, it talks about supernatural or heavenly beings. I mean, just to give you one example, Job 1.6 is probably the best one. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Seems pretty clear from that context that the sons of God mentioned are not just normal people. These are obviously angels or heavenly beings. So going back to our Genesis 6, 1-4 passage, it seems pretty clear from context, it seems pretty clear from usage elsewhere in the Bible, that these sons of God really should be seen as heavenly beings. In fact, it's clear in the passage that there's a contrast set up between these sons of God and the human daughters. So whatever the sons of God are, they probably can't be humans. This view of Genesis 6, 1-4 is often called the angelic view. And I think it fits well because it's really the best explanation for the judgment of the flood. I mean, it's always, to me anyway, seemed a bit odd that just your normal run-of-the-mill evil precipitated such a devastating response from God. It kind of makes sense that a sin that's so out of the ordinary, that's so grievous, would lead to something so extreme. This view is also the best explanation for the type of offspring that are produced. I mean, a normal human relationship wouldn't produce an offspring that were uh, some sort of hybrids, giants. This angelic view was the one that was taken by the earliest Jewish writers. This is how they interpreted Jewish writings outside of the Bible, such as Jubilees, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, First Enoch, and Second Baruch all reference this story, and they all see the sons of God as being angelic beings. In fact, almost all of the early church fathers took this view. People like Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Lactantius... Irenaeus, Cyprian, and Ambrose all believed this story described supernatural beings. In fact, it wasn't even until Augustine in the 5th century that what we call the Sethite view started to really take hold. 
And that's been the dominant view ever since, without a lot of pushback. One of the biggest objections to this idea that angelic beings are coming to Earth and having sexual relations with human women producing giant offspring, it sounds ridiculous even just saying it, and this is probably an objection that you've already thought of, is that angels surely can't have this type of physical relationship with humans. The passage that's cited for this argument is Matthew 22. This is where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees about the final resurrection. And in verse 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Most people cite this verse and say, See, Jesus says that angels can't have sex. Never mind the fact that it doesn't actually say that they can't. It's also important to note that the context of this whole passage to begin with is the final resurrection. You know, Jesus is saying that at the final resurrection, there isn't going to be any need for sexual relations because there's not going to be any need for procreation. So the context doesn't necessarily fit something that could have happened a couple of thousand years ago. And by the way, the Bible never says that angelic beings aren't able to sexually reproduce at all. I like the way scholar F.B. Huey Jr. puts it, referring to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 22. He says, quote, He was saying that the relationship of resurrected Christians will be different from the relationship experienced in marriage on earth. He was no more saying that angels are sexless than he was teaching that resurrected Christians will be neither male nor female. End quote. Lest we not forget, we have all sorts of passages throughout Scripture that talk about angels taking on actual physical form. And you have Genesis chapters 18 and 19, where it is clear that God himself, with two other angelic beings, are walking and talking and sharing a meal with Abraham. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where you have the two angels there in physical form, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, you have the writer of Hebrews warning people to make sure that they are hospitable towards strangers because they could be entertaining angels and not know it. So clearly, angels could take on actual physical human form. Not to say that they were humans, but they certainly did look like them. So it appears pretty clear that Matthew chapter 22 isn't a statement at all on whether or not Genesis chapter 6 and the sons of God could have done what they did. But I think the biggest support for this angelic view, the view that in Genesis chapter 6 you have angelic beings procreating with women to produce a giant offspring, is that this is also the view of the New Testament writers. There are two passages in the New Testament that directly address this very topic. The first one is in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. Here, Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them from hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the judgment day, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Here we find Peter talking about some great sin that angels committed that's also connected to what's going on during the time of the flood. He also connects it to the sexual sin that happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. But to understand more about how the New Testament writers are looking back on this story in Genesis chapter 6, we also need to hear what Jude says on the topic. Jude, that short one-chapter book, is going to stay in verses 5-7. through Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So if you didn't catch what Jude is saying there, he's talking about angels who left their, their proper dwelling, the place that they were supposed to be dwelling, and committed some sort of sin which he compares to the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I like the way that Dr. Michael Heiser, who I said we would be using a lot on this episode, summarizes what Peter and Jude both tell us. He says, quote, They describe an episode from the time of Noah and the flood where angels sinned. That sin which precipitated the flood was sexual in nature. It is placed in the same category as the sin which prompted the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The transgression was interpreted by Peter and Jude as evidence of despising authority and the boundaries of proper dwelling for the parties concerned. End quote. Even before Peter and Jude were writing about this story in the New Testament, it was receiving a lot of attention during what most scholars call the Second Temple Period. So this is that block of time in between the Old and New Testaments where nothing that, that we have today in our final versions of the Bible was written down. There was a lot of other things that were being written, but nothing that has found its way into our Bibles today. And it's called the Second Temple Period because it's the period of time when the Israelites came back from exile. They built the second version of their temple, and they were living back in the land. The other term used to talk about this period of time might sound a little more familiar to you. It also goes by the name Intertestamental Period because, obviously, it's written in between the two testaments. So when referring to it during this episode, I'll just use the term Intertestamental Period. The book of particular note that gives a lot of attention to this topic is the book of First Enoch. This is dated to around 200 BC, so a couple hundred years before anything in the New Testament was written down. The book of First Enoch is interesting. It's what we call part of the Pseudepigrapha, which 
basically means that it's a book that's considered to have a false name assigned to its authorship. So Enoch, the guy all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, is certainly not the person that wrote this. It's a book about this guy, Enoch, and the events that were uh, going on in the world around the time that he was living. And I do want to be clear about something because a lot of Christians sort of feel uncomfortable talking about or using some of these books that we typically do not believe belong in the Bible. And Enoch is one of those books where really the only group of Christians that consider it canonical or to be part of the inspired word of God is the Ethiopian church. So I in no way believe that the book of Enoch ought to be considered inspired in any way. But looking at books like this that were written by Jewish writers around some of the same time that other things are written is helpful for a number of reasons, and if for no other reason, but it gives us a glimpse into the mind of the ancient Jew from that time. And it helps us to understand maybe what Peter and Jude have in their minds as they're writing about the story, because Enoch would have been a book that all Jews would have been familiar with, and it gives us a ton of details about this event in Genesis chapter 6, while there are four verses that explain what happens with the sons of God and the Nephilim, the book of Enoch takes several chapters to describe the event and the aftermath of the event in detail. Some of the details from Enoch, especially the parts about the type of judgment that are placed on these angelic beings, match up exactly with what Peter and Jude tell us about the judgment. In fact, when you look at what Enoch has to say about this story and then match it with what Peter and Jude say, it's pretty clear that Peter and Jude have this story from Enoch in the back of their minds as they write. Now, we've looked at what Peter and Jude have to say about this Genesis chapter 6 event, so now let's see what Enoch has to say. And I'm going to quote some passages at length from Enoch because it helps give us a good idea of the entire story. And it's pretty fascinating, too. One quick note before we start with Enoch. He's going to use the word, or whoever the he is that's writing Enoch, will use the word watchers to describe these um, angelic beings. And this is actually a word that's biblical as well. In Daniel chapter 4, this term is used, which means holy ones in um, Aramaic. It's used to describe heavenly beings. So don't be thrown off when the word watchers is used. And probably for the rest of the episode, when I'm referring to these, um, these sons of God from Genesis chapter 6, I'll try to use the word watchers as well. This translation is by a guy named George Nickelberg. Starting in 1 Enoch chapter 6, it says, And when the sons of men had multiplied... In those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them. And the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Shimihaza, their chief, said to them, I fear that you will not want to do this deed, and I alone shall be guilty of a great sin. 
And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and let us all bind one another with a curse, that none of us turn back from this counsel until we fulfill it and do this deed. Then they all swore together and bound one another with a curse. And they were all of them two hundred, who descended in the days of Jared on the peak of Mount Hermon. And they called the mountain Hermon, because they swore and bound one another with a curse on it. Skipping down now a few verses to chapter 7, it says, These and all the others with them took for themselves wives from among them such as they chose. And they began to go into them, and to defile themselves through them, and to teach them sorcery and charms, and to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants. And they conceived from them, and bore to them great giants. And the giants begat Nephilim. And to the Nephilim were born Iliud, and they were growing in accordance with their greatness. They were devouring the labor of all the sons of men, and men were not able to supply them. And the giants began to kill men and to devour them. And they began to sin against the birds and the beasts and creeping things and the fish and to devour one another's flesh. And they drank the blood. Then the earth brought accusation against the lawless ones. Chapter 8 Azael taught men to make swords of iron and weapons and shields and breastplates and every instrument of war. He showed them metals of the earth and how they should work gold to fashion it suitably and concerning silver, to fashion it for bracelets and ornaments for women. And he showed them concerning antimony and eye paint, and all manner of precious stones and dyes. And the sons of men made them for themselves and for their daughters, and they transgressed and led astray the holy ones. And there was much godlessness upon the earth, and they made their ways desolate. Shimihaza taught spells and the cutting of roots. Harmani taught sorcery for the loosing of spells and magic and skills. Barakel taught the signs of the lightning flashes. Kakabel taught the signs of the stars. Zikel taught the signs of the shooting stars. Artikoth taught the signs of the earth. Shamsiel taught the signs of the sun. Shahriel taught the signs of the moon. And they all began to reveal mysteries to their wives and to their children. And as men were perishing, the cry went up to heaven. Pardon me for such a long quote, but I thought it was necessary to get the gist of exactly what's going on in the story. Clearly, this is a ton more detail than Genesis gives. I mean, this has 200 angels coming down on Mount Hermon and not only taking wives, but also teaching what amounts to uh, sorceries or different technologies, things like warfare or astrology, um, really what Enoch calls mysteries. The picture that this story paints is that these watchers were teaching humans all sorts of forbidden secrets and knowledge. And I wonder what, for instance, a modern woman might think listening to this podcast or reading that story, especially when they come to the line about the angels teaching things like eye paint. I mean, that's cosmetics. 
And there are other places in ancient Jewish literature that talk about this story of the Watchers and the things that they and their descendants taught men and women. And these other sources mention cosmetics as well as one of these great um, mysterious or forbidden pieces of knowledge. And I mean something like cosmetics that is so common to us today. So if this story is true and things like cosmetics really were taught to us by these heavenly creatures called watchers, what does that make you think every time you're putting on mascara? It's almost comical to think about. But in another sense, it's quite serious because the ancient people, those, I guess, who maybe could identify themselves as being more devoted to God than others, may very well have seen things like the usage of cosmetics as some sort of evil. And I don't know that we would think about it that way today, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Also, lines like the cutting of roots, the angels taught us the cutting of roots. What does that even mean? Or that one angel that was teaching the signs of the lightning flashes. I wonder what they were doing with lightning flashes. These are really fascinating things. You can see why, as I said earlier at the beginning of this episode, the ancient Jews certainly saw Adam's sin in the garden as a huge contributing factor to why the world was the way that it is. But a close second for them was the events that the book of Enoch spells out. I mean, without the secret knowledge, the warfare, all of these things that the Watchers teach humanity, in the mind of the ancient Jew, the world doesn't turn out quite as bad as it is. From these Watchers, we learned things that we never ought to have learned. The story in Enoch continues. It goes on to talk about the extraordinary height of the giant offspring that were produced. Things get so bad that God sends word to Noah to build the ark because of the great flood he's going to send upon the earth. It will then describe how these watchers send Enoch before God to plead their case, basically try to beg for no punishment. But this is to no effect because God's punishment that he places on them is severe. God pronounces in Enoch chapter 10, Bind Azael hand and foot and cast him into the darkness. That's one of the leaders of these watchers, by the way. And make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him therein. And place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment, he shall be cast into the fire. Then later, skipping down a few verses, he says of Simahaza and the rest of the angels, In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire, and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. Doesn't that judgment sound a lot like what Peter and Jude said? Both in Second Peter and in Jude, it talks about a great day of judgment, chains of fire, and everlasting punishment. I believe the word abyss is also mentioned. It's clear that both Peter and Jude, if nothing else, have this story from Enoch in the back of their minds as they're writing their letters. As I've said, this story from Genesis chapter 6, right before the time that Peter and Jude are writing their letters, in that period of time that we called the intertestamental period, 
This story started receiving a lot of attention, and a lot of Jewish writers were writing about it. People like the authors of First Enoch that we just mentioned, or like the author of Jubilee. We've even found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which dates to around this time in between the Old and New Testament, something called the Book of Giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which tells this same story as well. And he gives a lot of the same details that the writer of First Enoch gave about watchers coming down, giants roaming the earth, and then God bringing the flood because of all of these events that are going on. But one of the most interesting features from this book of the giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that it talks about a famous ancient piece of literature from Mesopotamia that you may have heard of before. Perhaps you studied it in school at one point. It was called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the book of giants talks about some of the characters from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it names some of these characters as some of these giants. But most importantly, it names Gilgamesh, the fabled Sumerian king. You know, some people think this guy was a real person. Some people think that he wasn't. But this book of giants names him as one of the giants as well. And this brings us into a very interesting portion of our study where the ancient biblical world comes into contact with the ancient non-biblical world. And I don't even really like these ideas of a, a, a biblical ancient world and non-biblical ancient world because really it's all the same world. These biblical stories and the people that are writing them and all of God's interaction with his people. I mean, they're all happening with the same world backdrop. And just like you get with a lot of the other stories in the Bible, take the flood, for example. I mean, we have stories of a global flood in all sorts of ancient civilizations. This story of the Watchers and the human women and the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6, this story is also found in a bunch of of ancient civilizations. One of the more fascinating examples of this and one of the more detail-to-detail -detail matches comes from this Mesopotamian story about a group of beings called the Apkalu. And in case you don't know where or what ancient Mesopotamia was, it's this place, I've mentioned it in a previous podcast, it's a, a place where a lot of these biblical stories, especially early on, are taking place. The word Mesopotamia literally means between two rivers. The two rivers the word is referring to are the Tigris and the Euphrates. So the area we're talking about is really modern-day Iraq. And it's in this area that the people had these stories about these Apkalu. Yapkalu were divine beings that were around before the flood. Yes, they have the flood story in their civilization. These Apkalu came down to earth and gave divine knowledge to humans. The knowledge that they gave was passed down through their hybrid offspring between them and women, who also happened to be giants. These details are strikingly similar to 
the Genesis chapter 6 story and the other Jewish writings outside of the Bible, like First Enoch. And similar is not even the right word. They're exactly the same details, except that the Bible or the, the Jewish writers don't call them the Apkalu. They call them the Watchers. And this is far from being the only civilization with stories like this. I mean, the ancient Assyrians have stories, the Persians, the Indians, the Egyptians, the Incas, and the Mayans. Natives from the South Sea Islands and even our own Native Americans have stories similar to this one. And if you're remembering your days in school from studying Greek mythology, I had to study it in middle school, this story might sound similar to some of the ones you learned there. I mean, think about it. The, the ancient... Greek heroes like Hercules, what was he? Half human and half god. Sounds a lot like the hybrid Nephilim characters from Genesis chapter 6. It's even interesting that, you know, we referenced a passage from 2 Peter earlier, where 2 Peter in verse 4 talks about the angels that sinned being cast into hell. Well, hell is probably the translation that you see in most of your Bibles. But another way to translate that word is the Greek word Tartarus. Tartarus, interestingly enough, is the same Greek word that's used in the stories about the Titans and the Giants, the prison that they're placed in. So there are a ton of connections here. And it always leaves me wondering, you know, are these all myths? Are all of these ancient civilizations trying to explain where really tall people come from, for example? I tend to believe that if all of these cultures have an eerily similar story, maybe they're all remembering a real event, like the flood, for example. And it could be that the four verses we find in Genesis chapter 6 are just a few short comments. On this actual event, an event that, like I said before, was so ingrained in the ancient Jewish mind that it's one of the reasons why they thought the world was the way that it was. And as we're going to see as we continue, had a lot to do with some of the things that we find in the New Testament. And in particular, a couple of the things that Jesus is going to do in the Gospels himself. At this point in the story, you might be thinking to yourself, no way, I don't buy any of this. This story that involves angelic beings and sexual relations with women and giant offspring, no way any of this stuff ever really happened. Not in our 21st century rationalistic modern mind. But I always find that stance very interesting because as Christians... We seem to have no problem believing in things like a supernatural, eternal creator, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons, the idea that God could become a man by being born of a woman that was a virgin, resurrection from the dead. I mean, we claim to believe in a spiritual realm. I mean, Paul writes about this in his letters about how our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual realm. We believe these things as Christians, but stories like Genesis chapter 6 are tough for us to take in. I would suggest 
that if we believe in all of the other, I would call them certainly supernatural doctrines of the Christian faith, we ought to be able to believe in this one as well. We've been doing a lot of background work, a lot of sort of building an argument for why it is that this is the correct interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. It's a lot of legwork, but it's necessary. In part two of this episode, it will be important to have a discussion about the spiritual realm, you know, angels and demons and things like that, and exactly what sort of picture of that realm does the Bible paint? And what did the ancient Jews think about that realm? We'll also look at other places in the Old Testament where these Nephilim creatures show up, as well as looking at some interesting connections in the Gospels to the story in Genesis chapter 6, as well as Paul's writings. And when we're done, you might see some of these stories or even some of these problem verses in the Bible in a new light. Thanks for listening to Biblical Proportions. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe on the podcast and download the episodes because that helps us know who's listening. Also, make sure you go to our website, www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com to check out the sources used for each episode under the Sources tab. Finally, if you think what we're doing here is worthwhile, then we sure would appreciate your support. On the website, there's a place where you can give your support to what we're doing at Biblical Proportions and assist us in continuing to put out content like what you just listened to. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.